Job chapter 34. That's where we turn again this morning. Job 34 is the second of Elihu's four speeches as he is responding to Job and responding to the three friends as they all had opportunity for a long time to speak and to give their perspectives on things. And now Elihu speaks as one from God, who speaks as one with wisdom, not because he's aged, not because he's been around the block a few times, but because God has helped him understand these things. Do you remember we looked at, it's been a few weeks ago now, we looked at an overview of the four speeches of Elihu, just in a summary fashion. His first one, chapters 32 and 33, is saying, you know, Job, you're saying that God isn't speaking. He's far removed from you. He's not present in your affliction. Let me tell you, God speaks through affliction. He teaches us through our afflictions. And so we can rejoice in him and find very much confidence that his will is being accomplished. He's revealing himself. He's kind even in our distresses and our sufferings and, and so forth. So Job, don't think that God is somehow distant. He is so near to you and so much, uh, so close to you during this time. He is going to say in this next, the second speech in chapter 34, that God's ways are just. God is fair. God is good. God is profoundly knowledgeable in and powerful in the application of his justice. And so we'll look at that speech today. He mentions it briefly in the second speech, but then he expounds upon it in his third speech, and that is that Job is wrong about piety. You you have, you know, we, we saw his statements back in chapters one and two about how God gives and takes away and blessed be the name of God. But then he also is, is still bound by that idea, I've not done anything worthy or deserving of this kind of suffering that I'm enduring. How could, how could I ever do such a thing that deserves this decimation of my life, of my wealth, of my family? And he says, I don't deserve it. And, and what is that to me? What, how, how does God uh, relate to me in that way? And Elihu says, what are you even thinking that way for? That's false. That's a wrong way to think that God owes you something because you're such a good person. No, let me tell you about this. So that's the third message. And then finally, he ends with this. God is great. Job, you think you're pretty hot stuff. You think that you've got God by the tail, that you've obligated him to act because you demand it. You demand an audience with God. Let me tell you something about God. He is great. And you think, oh, well, that's, that's a kid's prayer, right? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Amen, right? Have you ever prayed that prayer? That's what I was taught, right? I don't pray that way anymore, but it's still true. Okay, God is great. God is good. And we do thank him because he gives everything for us. But Elihu says, Job, you are so full of yourself, you think you've got this righteousness even that you could share with other people. No, you are wrong. God is great. God is the one. And so he expounds on that for two chapters, which leads right into God himself speaking. Two speeches that God provides as a carryover, as an exclamation mark on Elihu's confrontation against the friends, of course, and Job specifically. But God is near. He is active in Job's life. And Job thinks, no, he's not like that at all. Uh, he, he has wronged me. He has done all this injustice toward me. He's withheld justice. And so Elihu is going to focus on that here in the second speech, chapter 34, that he's, he's speaking, God is just. God is fair. God is good. He says in these first, first half, I guess, or first third maybe of first whatever, two-fifths of, uh, of chapter 34, he's talking to the assembly. And he says here in chapter 34, let me just read uh, these, these verses. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my speech, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose for ourselves what is just. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I'm righteous, but God has removed my justice. Should I lie concerning my 
of justice. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Let me just stop right there for, for now. Elihu is answering, him and he says, he's continuing. This is a second speech that he has, has offered, and you can see how each of the first verses of various chapters have then Bildad spoke, or answered and spoke, or Job continued, or whatever. Well, here it's Elihu answering again, answering himself, because he's the one who was just speaking. What you'll notice, too, in the, in the course of these speeches is nobody's responding to him. Nobody has any rebuttals, nobody has any corrections. Job himself is silent. Remember at the end of chapter 31, the words of Job are ended and the other friends, they've given up too. Job isn't listening to us, so we, what hope do we have? We, we've tried to offer you know, the best perspective we have, which Elihu and Job both said, that's a bunch of hogwash, that's a bunch of foolishness. Where'd you come up with that idea? And that kind of thing. No wonder the friends said, well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to waste my words on him anymore. But Elihu is not ref- refuted at all either, which indicates, again, in their thinking, well, the one who is speaking is the one who's right. If you can answer him or refute him, then... then uh, and then he's, he's wrong. And that was Elihu's concern back in chapter 32 about that, that Job is still speaking. The friends are, are the ones who couldn't answer him. So he says in verse 2, Hear my speech, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. He is talking not just about those three, not just about Job. He's talking about the wise men in general, the congregation of people that had come and assembled around this, this very interesting debate. There's something that's been going on for some time. And again, this, this would be like... You know, a, a very notable figure, I'm, I have some in my mind, in our present age that, that destitution has come upon them. And they're out there sitting in an ash heap. And they, they're just, their skin, they're just not in a good shape. And all the people have abandoned them. And now these people come and try to refute him and comfort him and all this. And, and so it is a scene. It is something that draws the, the attention of the community. And so different people are there watching this whole thing and listening. And so he says, okay, everybody, hey, everybody gathered around, listen to me, you wise men, you who know. And it's not just uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar who are the wise men. Remember that Elihu said, I thought that if you're old, then you'd be wise. And you guys, you're not wise, even though you are old and I'm young. And let me tell you something. And even because I'm young or despite that I'm young, I still have a wisdom to offer you. So he says, listen to me. And he says, we need to discern some things here. We need to, uh, verse 3 says, as the ear tests words, as the palate takes food. So we need to evaluate things. We need to uh, make sure that we are evaluating words and ideas and thoughts according to God's word, God's perspective. Again, that ministry of the word that we were talking about earlier. That we're trying to evaluate, discern what is appropriate, what is good. He says the ear, what, we, what goes into the ear, that's for our evaluation to think what is, what is right about these things. And then, of course, we know what food we like and what food we don't like. And, and sometimes we spit it out or we don't eat it or we, I don't like that. So there's discernment about this. You can't just let all kind of words come in and out. You need to have, as some people would describe it as an open mind, or it's kind of like, well, you need to shut it sometimes. Shut your mind because that thinking over there, that, those words, that perspective, that's not good. That's not godly. What that person is saying, what that teacher is teaching, you need discernment. We need to know and evaluate words. And so he says, that's what we're doing right now. Verse 4 says, let us choose for ourselves what is just. Let us know among ourselves what is good. He says, we have a choice to make. It's not like, I'm, I'm neutral on these things. You can't be neutral in this regard. You've got to choose sides. You've got to know what is just, what is good. These two ideas, the first one has to do with a legal 
identity, a legal uh, rightness, or what is just, what is right, or what is fair. And so he says, we need to know, because this whole thing is about justice. Job is questioning God's justice. Well, okay, what are we going to do about that? He is questioning an elemental aspect of who God is, that God somehow is not just, he's not right in this regard legally, uh, and he finds fault with people for no reason, or, or he doesn't honor those who are righteous. So we've got to know. Let us choose for ourselves what is just. Let us know, verse 4 says, let us know among ourselves what is good. And that has to do with more of a moral goodness or what is uh, sound, uh, healthy. Uh, we read about that in the New Testament as well. What is sound uh, as opposed to sickly or diseased or just not good at all. But also what is acceptable. What is a pleasant thing to look upon. And so Job is, is questioning all these different things. And he goes on to, to quote or paraphrase some of the claims that Job has made here in the following verses. But he says, we have a choice to make, everybody. We see Job on trial, not just here on earth. I mean, that's where they're, they're, they're seeing, that's their perspective. But God, we know from chapters 1 and 2, God is on trial, excuse me, Job is on trial in the heavenly realms. And it's, it's not even so much about Job, it's about God himself and God's worship. And is God worthy of worship? And is God worthy of fearing him and turning away from evil just in himself, regardless of what he may give as a bonus to us, as a, as a blessing to us, uh, all the stuff that Job had at the beginning of, of the book here, the flocks and the children and the wealth and all that, and the notoriety, reputation, everything. What if that was nothing? What if you just had God? Would that be enough? It would be enough, okay? It would be enough. And Job needs to be reminded of that. Forget all the, the stuff. And that's really... We don't want to be too hard on Job. Uh, we want to correct him. We want to evaluate, right? But he is the one who said, I don't care about this stuff. I'm not interested in the return of the blessings of, of well, you know, God has taken, blessed be the name of God. But where is God? Why has he forsaken me? Where We used to have this relationship and I had this, I was so intimate with him and now he's so distant. I don't know where he is and he's given me all these things that are horrible to me. And it's not so much the horror of it. Where is God in this? And so whereas the friends would say, had a very me- mechanistic or mechanical view of God, you know, do this, you know, input this and get out that and, and just a poor view of God. Job did have a personal relationship with him and wanted that restored, did not understand what happened. Where did he go wrong? What is this going on? And because he claims his own integrity, his own righteousness, he said, well, the problem must be with God. God is somehow unjust toward me. He has wronged me. And that issue is what Elihu is addressing, that somehow if, if Job is right, God has to be wrong. Well, that's not the case at all. So he goes on in verses uh, 5 and 6 and quotes or paraphrases some of the, the claims that Job has made through the course of his various speeches. And he says, you know, Job has said, which again, interrupting myself so rudely, he said, he focuses on, Elihu focuses on what Job has said. Not so much as the friends did what he has done in the past that somehow, well, Job, we know that you are a secret sinner. We know that you've done this and bad stuff over here. Elihu doesn't go back to the past and say your suffering is because of your sin in the past. He says right now, in the course of your suffering, you're saying some wicked things about God. And you need to repent about these things. He calls them to repentance at the end of the chapter here. But he he says it's not that Job has done these wicked things. It's his words. It's his words, what he's saying. He claims, oh, I'm righteous, but God has removed my justice. Should I lie concerning my justice? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Again, this is Elihu kind of paraphrasing, quoting uh, some of the complaints that Job has offered before, which 
I mean, I won't belabor the point, but he has. If we went back to various speeches that Job has offered, he says, uh, I am righteous. Even if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I'm sated with disgrace, verse, uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 15. He has a, has a confidence in uh, chapter 13, verse 18, that he has arranged his case. He's got everything in order, all the, all the uh, defensive or um, self-defense statements, all the evidence for himself. He says, I know I will be declared righteous. So he says, I am righteous. I know I'll be declared righteous. And so he has that confidence. But he says, God has removed my justice. God has somehow wronged me. Remember back in chapter 19, uh, verses 6 and 7, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me, a net of of trap, of of snare and and, uh, hunting and, and cutting him down. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there's no justice. God has refused to help me. Chapter 27, verse 2, As God lives, who has removed my justice, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul. God has upset me. God has wronged me. I deserve my day in court. Let God defend himself. Let God answer for his works toward me. Which again takes your breath away. Job, what are you saying about God? God is great. And he is removed from you, and yet he is so close to you. If you'd humble yourself before him, if you just turn away from your evil words and your, your selfishness, your, your, you're thinking so much about yourself. And so, yes, what Elihu is claiming Job has said, Job has said. He goes on and uh, quotes him in verse 6. Should I lie concerning my justice? Should I... Uh, falsely claim or or falsely confess my guilt, even though I know I'm innocent? Should I make up a story that that somehow, uh, okay, I guess I am unrighteous? And it's not that that Job says, I don't have any transgression, I don't have any sin. I mean, he kind of alternates in that idea, but ultimately he knows that he is a human. He ultimately knows that he is faulty, but he says, I've taken means to approach God in a blameless fashion, to to fear God and turn away from evil. So he says, look, should I make up things to confess, to satisfy them? Should I plead guilty just to get things moving forward? Should you know, He says, my wound is incurable. I've already had the judgment or the sentence passed upon me, uh, though I'm without transgression. Why is God destroying me? This word uh, wound, my wound, is, is literally saying my arrow, the, the arrows that God has pierced me with. He has shot me through with arrows back in chapter 6. Early on, he says, The arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The horrors of God are arranged against me. And he talks about being hunted by God in chapter 16 and how he is, he is just the object of God's animosity and anger. Well, what's it about? Why, am, why is there no hope? He says, there's no hope. Look at me. I'm, I'm, my body is broken. My wealth is gone. My reputation is destroyed. My family is gone. I mean, even his wife, where's his wife at this time? And so he doesn't have any hope, especially because where's God in this? Elihu's trying to help him in that regard. So in verses uh, 7 and following, uh, he, he answers. He says, okay, let me help you along this way. This rebuke that Elihu offers, that he is, he is uh, needing to be refuted. Let me just tell you this. I didn't forget, I forgot to point this out. If you wanted some eyes, some, some uh, not eyes to see with, but eye words, Therefore, that in these verses 5 and 6, Job has claimed innocence, and beginning of verse 5, he has claimed injustice. So innocence, injustice, God has removed my justice. He's been insulted. Should I lie concerning my justice? And he is incurable. 
So innocence, injustice, insulted, incurable, in those verses 5 and 6. And now Elihu offers this rebuke, and he kind of, he, he's just been quoting Job, but to the audience, right, the people assembled, and says, who is like Job? And here's this fellow Job. What man is like Job, verse 7, who drinks up mocking like water? But he travels in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. For he said, it's of no use to a man when he's pleased with God. He's offering a very dear, very heart-rending rebuke of Job and saying he is mocking, he is scoffing, he is very rude in his words. He's even being derisive or jeering toward God. Maybe Job wouldn't characterize it that way, but boy, when we read some of Job's things, we would say, yeah, he is, he is eating or drinking, mocking like water. He just, I mean, just everything he says is, is tainted with that thing. He's making mockery of God part and parcel of his life. Job had said that the friends are going to mock after he speaks, but it's Job who's really mocking God and, and uh, giving false testimony even about him, that he, God has somehow uh, misplaced his justice, somehow forgotten to be kind to Job. And so he, Elihu is saying, no, it's you that are that are in trouble here. You're mocking. You're traveling in company with the workers of iniquity and walking with wicked men. That's not a good company to be in. And you remember, okay, this is kind of a harsh statement, but this is kind of what Job offered to his wife back in chapter 2, verse um, 8, I think it was. Verse 10, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10, to his wife who said, curse God and die. Do you hold fast your integrity? Just forget about it. But Job responded, no, you speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. And so he's saying, not, he's not saying, wife, you're wickedly foolish. No, you're acting. You've listened to those wickedly foolish people. And that's what Elihu is saying. What company are you keeping, Job? Because you're not saying things that are godly. You're not saying things that are right about God. Verse 9 says, uh, he, again, Elihu says what Job has said before. It's of no use to a man when he's pleased with God. That's something that he's going to, he touches on it here very briefly, but he's going to expound upon it in the next speech, chapter 35, that we'll look at at that time. But again, it's that idea that uh, prosperity follows piety, that somehow if, if God is pleased with us or if we're pleased with God, then we have a benefit, a material benefit from God. And so Job says, well, obviously, look at me. It's of no use when somebody delights in God, is pleased with God, because he's taken everything from me. I thought, you know, please, you know being pleased with God means kind of a good life and everything. That's what I was used to. And God says, forget about the benefits. I'll give good things, but don't seek first those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other stuff will be added. But also, in, insofar as addition works, so does subtraction. And insofar as multiplication works, so does division. And so that's what Job's perspective was early on. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, and I'm angry about it. No, blessed be the name of Yahweh. God is the one who's in charge, but he's forgotten about these things. He's focused more upon his suffering and the just horrible situation he's in. And he's thinking foolishly. And so Elihu is offering a very sound rebuke. Again, I mentioned this early on when we first started looking at Elihu's speech, that so much of scholarship, Bible, Bible studiers, Bible students throughout history have looked at Elihu's speeches here in chapters 32 to 37 and said that doesn't need to be in Scripture why, why do we even have this? He's just repeating the same things the friends have said, and it's wrong and it's foolish. Uh, and so they would just discard it entirely. Or they'd say uh, that, okay, he, he's really not adding any of the discussion. We can just skip over it. We, no, he is speaking, as, I, as I've offered, as a prophet of God, as one who's speaking God's perspective. 
he enters the scene rather abruptly, he leaves the scene at the end of chapter 37, is not mentioned again. doesn't mean that he's somehow uh, ephemeral or a spirit, uh, not effeminate, ephemeral, as, uh, just somebody who comes in and out. It's interesting, too, how so many people have discarded Jonah as a prophet, and yet now he appears in the historical record, Second Kings 17, is it, or 19? He's mentioned, you know, Jonah, the son of Amittai, mentioned in the historical record, indicating, no, this thing that the fish and the Nineveh really happened. And we think, oh, Elihu didn't happen. No, he did. And God, as Elijah, prepared the way for Yahweh to come, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, so Elihu prepares for God himself to come on the scene in chapter 38. I say that because we need to listen to Elihu. We need to hear what he is saying because he is offering not just a an embarrassing refutation of Job, but a helpful correction to Job. And we ought to think, well, I hope Job received it because, boy, he was a hard-headed nut. Uh, And we think, well, wait a minute, what about us? What kind of reproof can we respond to and and receive? Because, you know, we can trust that people are speaking to us in love and and desire that, you know, I I see something not quite right in your life, the way that you're thinking or or speaking or uh, how you're making value judgments on this, you know, and we're ministering the word of God through these authentic relationships because there is a correction that we need, but it requires a humility. Job is very much full of himself, his own righteousness. I've got this figured out. God has wronged me. And Elihu says, you need to take a step down, sir. You need to sit down and you need to humble. You're sitting in the dust. Why don't you remember that you are dust? And God is something entirely different to you. That is what Elihu is offering to him. That's what we offer to another, not in a heavy-handed, you know, you need to get your life in order But for your own sake, live, live for God's glory, live to please him, live according to his word. It's the best thing available to us. So Elihu goes on with this rebuke and he he says, look, Job is a mocking uh, uh, mouth. He's just speaking all these things. But let me tell you something. God is just. God is always just. Verse 10 goes on to say, Uh, Verse 10 says, Therefore listen to me, you men with a heart of wisdom, again, talking about all the congregation assembled, far be it from God to do injustice and from the Almighty to do wrong. So he's, again, affirming in a a negative way and a positive way that God is always just. You are men with a heart of wisdom. You're men with a heart. You're men of courage, men of understanding. Well, act like it and think rightly about these things. We could never come to the conclusion that somehow God is, is able to do wrong. No, may it be far from him. That that phrase, far be it from God. He's just saying that that is not something that is anything part of who God is. He is always just, always uh, paying back evil for evil and good for good in that regard. What, What we would call distributive justice, that God offers punishments for evildoers, but also rewards for those who do good. And we think, well, wait a minute, isn't that part of the retribution principle? Well, the thing is, the retribution principle is true. The whole thing about uh, suffering follows sin and, and prosperity follows piety. The problem comes in when we expect it right now in this temporal experience. When we expect the, the scripture that says the soul that sins shall surely die. Adam and Eve did not die right when they ate that fruit. But they did spiritually die. They'd had, they had the entrance of death. They had the conviction of, of sin and so forth. The point is, even if God does not bring rewards or punishment in this life, in the in you know the next week or two weeks or ten months, there is a judgment coming. And God's patience is so profound. He is 
allowing time for people to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth and to confess their sins and then his mercy can be extended to them. But those who, as we studied last Sunday, there is God being both the just one who is right all the time, but he's also the justifier of those who believe, trust, and live in a way that pleases God through Christ Jesus. And so, again, the retribution principle is not wrong. It's just that when we say it has to happen on our terms, God, you need to come down and take care of those evildoers right now because they're just doing stuff wrong. And by the way, look at me. I've done such a good thing. Why don't you honor me with something? I need some prosperity right now. God doesn't act that way. He's not bound in those ways. He is just. He always does what is right, but not on our timetable. And Elihu's going to revisit that idea here in just a moment. But he makes this very, very bold claim here in verse 10, twice, negatively and positively. Far be it from God to do injustice and from the Almighty to do wrong. In verse 10 and verse 11, he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Verse 11, that's a positive claim that God is just, that he is the one who does things according to his righteousness, according to his justice. This idea of of injustice or doing wrong. Again, can we expect God to somehow make mistakes in life? That oh, God, uh, if you just asked me first, then I would have told you what you should have done, which is a wrong way to think about things. Uh, but now God is always, again, may it be far from God. Perish the thought, we would see it in the New Testament, it's mentioned in Romans 6, for example. Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Never! would we think that? Never would we come to that conclusion. Never, he says here, never would we think that God would do injustice and that God, the Almighty, would do wrong. He is the Almighty God. He's going to revisit that idea in just a moment too. But he has that positive claim in verse 11. Jesus does pay. God does pay a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Now, you could take that the wrong way and you could say, well, we can interpret situations in life saying, oh, this has happened because of my previous sin. God is judging me. God has brought the, my own transgression upon my head. And okay, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe not. Uh, was it Joseph's, uh, J- Joseph, son of Jacob? Was it his sin that resulted in his slavery in Egypt for years? And then his eventual rise to the second in the kingdom? Was it because of his sin? Because God had a purpose. Was it because of the brother's sin? Well, yes, but God was using their sin in his good plan to save many people. So should we immediately come to the conclusion it's because of sin that this is happening? Well, if it's your sin you're talking about, yeah, evaluate yourself and consider, are these bad things happening in my life because of my sin? Well, look at yourself and see what kind of sin is going on. But know that there are other purposes that God has in mind too, not just retribution for sin. How about discipline, how about training, how about refining, pruning, all these things. There are a lot of reasons why this could happen. But we know that God is doing everything rightly. He does pay a man according to his work, makes him find it according to his way. But when you have the perspective of build that and say that happens right now in life, I mean, you do a, a sin and you will enter into the, the, the fullness of that sin, which is what he claimed about Job's sons. Remember back in chapter 8, I think it was, when Bildad said, if your sons sinned, then God has given them, given them into the fullness or the, the retribution of their sin because they all died. And that was kind of, a, oh, we, oh, your friend died? Well, he must have been a sinner. No, God has purposes beyond these things. Their, their neat little system of the three friends did not, does not work in our life. It does work in, ultimately, and that's what Elihu is saying. He says in 12, 
verses 12 to 15, that God is the only God. And you think, well, isn't that kind of pedantic? Verse 12 says, Truly God will not act wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. Who appointed him with authority over the earth? And who has laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, let me tell you something, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would breathe its last together, and man would return to dust. Let me tell you about power. God was not given power. God was not delegated authority. He will not act wickedly, verse 12. The Almighty will not pervert justice. Again, these ideas of justice, of wickedness, of goodness, of wrongdoing, all, the, all tied in together. And he says, God will not do these things. The Almighty, the powerful one, will not do these things. Verse 13, who made him or who gave them this authority? Who is the one who has more authority than God that could somehow say, hey, God, why don't you be in charge for a little while? I'll take the reins back after a while, but you, you do stuff. See what you can do with life. Who has laid on him the whole world? Nobody. Again, there's God, triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and there's everything else. And there's nobody who could say, hey, God, let me give you some more authority. Let me give you a place in this world. Nobody can say that. If you want the expression, the ultimate expression of power, how about the power of life and of death? I mean, all God has to do, withdraw to himself his spirit and his breath. And remember, he's talked about spirit and breath, I think back in chapter 32, two different ways. One having to do with the life force, like mentioned back in Genesis 2, um, God breathed in him the, the breath of life and he became a living spirit to Adam, Genesis 2. There's that idea of life, and that's what he's talking about here. But there's also, early on in chapter 32, talking about the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling Elihu and speaking God's word. So it's a different reference there. But here, here it has to do with life. If God should take away life, who would be alive? I mean, good grief. Didn't we see everything that had life in its, or the breath of life in itself, perished off the face of the earth except Noah and his family there on the ark? Can God do this? Can God really kill everything that has breath? He's already done it once. He can do it again. And all he has to do is say it. If he should set his heart on it, he just has to think about it and act. And there's nobody is going to refute him. And somebody says, God, excuse me, I should be exempt from your order, your edict, because of X, Y, and Z. No, God has the authority to do it. And everybody, by the way, deserves punishment. Everybody deserves death because of our sin. And yet God is so gracious to do these things. God is just. God is the one who works always, always, always in a just fashion. There's nobody greater than him. He says, now he's, he's speaking now in verses 16 to 33 to Job. And he says, I, okay, all you guys, you can continue to listen, but I'm going to talk to Job specifically. You, if you have understanding, hear this. And he's going from uh, uh, all y'all kind of a perspective to you, Job. If you, Job, have understanding, you claim to know all these things, let me tell you this, give ear to the sound of my speech. And he asks this question, verse 17, shall one who hates justice rule? And you think, okay, one who hates justice. He's talking about God. Job is claiming that God hates justice. God is in an, in an unjust God. God is doing things that are wrong. And Elihu says, okay, okay if if one who hates justice, would that be wise for him to be in rulership, in, in a leadership position when he is wicked, when he loves wrongdoing? He's, he's imp, he is partial toward these things. He doesn't answer in the right time. Is that wise? Would you accept that? Shall one who hates justice rule? Now, in our Western 
practice of government, we have separated, we have separation of powers between our executive branch, our legislative branch, and our judicial branches. And other, other countries have a similar setup as well. Because we're, we know, and our founding fathers recognized, oh, there's a bunch of horrible things that can happen if you centralize power within one person or even within one, one uh, government entity. So we're going to try to distribute these things so that there's these, not just checks and balances, but outright, no, we're not going to do that at all. And there's, there's not equality between those branches of government, but, but uh, even you know, the Congress was supposed to be the, the most powerful of the three branches of government. We have that kind of turned a little bit. Anyway, in the Old Testament, or the ancient world, the centralization of power and justice were in one person. And so, for example, when you see in uh, the life of Solomon, for example, he is the one who has all power. He's the king. I mean, he is, he's the king. And he has all the wars and all the battles that David fought for his kingdom and so forth. Solomon just has to enjoy, just has to manage. He doesn't, he's not a fighter like his father. He received or inherited just a peaceful kingdom and ruled over it for a long time. He had the power, undisputed authority, and so much money, gold, apes, peacocks, all the things. Remember reading all those things that come into the kingdom? Wow. But he had justice. In fact, that's what he asked. When God said, ask anything, I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom. To do what? To rule, to judge God's people righteously. And we have examples of that, in, in, as you can read through uh, the, the accounts of Solomon's kingdom. But that idea of power and justice centralized. So here he says, shall one who hates justice, this justice idea, be in a position of authority and power? Because those ideas were together. And we would say, uh, no, that's why we need to have three different branches of government and all these kind of things. Well, yes, that. But when we're talking about God, there's no other God that say, okay, you be the one who's, who has the power, but then you be the God who's, who's the just one over here. You exercise the justice. It is concentrated and centralized in God himself. And Elihu says, okay, you're claiming this thing that God is not just, but he is the powerful one. He, there's nobody else above him. You can't appeal to a higher power. There's no Supreme Court beyond him. He is it. So you're claiming things about God that are not true. Will you condemn the righteous, mighty one? Again, bring those two ideas together, being righteous and mighty, all-powerful. You, Job, are claiming things that you know are not true about God. You know that God is powerful, that God is the authority. God is king over all. He is sovereign over all. But you're finding fault with his justice? You cannot do that. You can't play it both ways. You cannot do that. You are condemning God by affirming your own integrity. And now beginning in verse 18, he lists five reasons why God is just. God is just. He is fair. He is good. He is righteous in all of his doings. He is, I don't think I have this on the, on the screen, I'm sorry. God is just. Verses 18 and 19, God judges with impartiality. God judges with impartiality. Verses 18 and 19. God is the one who says to a king, I mean, one in authority, one who you'd want to honor, you're a vile one. You're a lawbreaker. You're a wicked rascal. You're a bandit. You're a thief. Wait a minute. Shouldn't God be kind of kind to the king? I mean, they really have authority. God says, no. If he's a wrongdoer, accuse him as a wrongdoer. He's not going to, just because he's the king, the president, the prime minister, if he's guilty, he's guilty. Be declared vile. Or to nobles, princes, the high respected people. If they're wrongdoers, no, you're wicked. I don't care what you have. I don't care what relationships you have, what wealth you have. If you're wicked, you're wicked. That's how God rules. 
He does not view, up, view upon faces. He does not view, oh, you have this party affiliation, or you have this, this bunch of friends, or you're an influential uh, influencer on the social medias. Or, no. If you're a wicked, wrongdoer, you're going to be condemned by God. He's the one who says, He doesn't show partiality to princes or recognize the rich above the poor, for they're all the work of his hands. It's kind of like that old, what, the, the, the statement about, hey, I changed your diaper kind of things. So I'm not going to listen to you. There's no, impart, there's no partiality. I, I know what you got. And so God says, I made that person. I made them, they're the work of my hands. I made them from dust. They don't impress me. I'm not, not going to do it. So God judges with impartiality. Verse 20 says, God judges with certainty. Certainty. No uncertain, uncertainty, no question about God. In a moment, they die. And at midnight, people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. Well, who does that? God does it in a moment. Sometimes our justice is slow. The, the, the wheels of justice turn slowly and so forth. When God judges, when God gets around to it, it is something that is certain. It is something that cannot be controverted. It cannot be appealed. It cannot be something, you know, set it. Can we just set this aside? No. In a moment, they die. Because what? The wage of sin is Oh, a sentence, life, life in prison. We'll just put you, no, you're going to die. In a moment, they die. And at midnight, the time when everybody's at home in bed and it's peaceful and quiet, and that's when people die. And you think, well, how can they get into the house? The windows are shut, the doors are shut. Doesn't matter to God. Didn't we just celebrate Passover? When did the firstborn die? At midnight, right then. Because God is not a respecter of persons. He is the one who comes in whenever he wants to do it. And the people are shaken and they die. The mighty are taken away without a hand. There's nobody comes in and you know, slays them with a sword. God is the one who is able to withdraw breath from them. So God judges with certainty. Verses 21 and following says that God judges according to knowledge. According to knowledge. God judges not based on hearsay, not based on suspicion, not based on rumors. He bases his judgment on knowledge. Verse 21 says, says, For his eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without searching anything out and sets others in their place. Therefore he recognizes their labors, and he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. Think, wow. God is, he knows these things. He doesn't need evidence. He he. His eyes are always on men, he see, and women and boys and girls. His eyes are always looking. He sees everything that we do. So God has perfect knowledge. He has all the information he needs to judge righteously. He has, he's omniscient. He knows everything. No one can hide or withhold evidence from him. No one even needs to present any evidence to him because he already has it. He can't be informed of anything or hide anything from him. And in fact, no one needs, even needs to argue in his defense. There is no need to have self-justification or explain things to God. He already knows these things. Verse 23 indicates there's no need for a long investigation. He does not need to consider or evaluate a man further that he should go before God in judgment. God already knows these things. And so Job can rest assured that God knows his character. God knows exactly what he's about. And so Job should rest in that knowledge and rest in God's justice. Verse 24 says that God breaks in pieces mighty men without searching anything out, and sets others in their place. He is the one who is able to bring down those who are powerful, those who are in positions of authority, and not doesn't even need to 
figure things out or examine anything further. He will set other people in their place. We know that Elihu is uh, encouraging Job in this regard because Job has said somehow God isn't aware of these things. He lets evil people continue in their wickedness and so forth. And, and sometimes God even uses kind of maybe perhaps torturous means or oppressive means to discover the person's sin. This is the accusation of of the friends anyway and what, what they're all about. Back in chapter 10, we can consider that, that somehow God is, is using torture to expose people's wickedness. No, God already knows all these things, everything fully. And so whenever he acts in his time, he acts justly and according to his power. Verse 25 says that he recognizes their labors. He overthrows them in the night. They are crushed. God brings this uh, judgment uh, with certainty, as we saw back in verse 20, but as with a devastating destruction. Verse 25, again, he uh, he overthrows them in the night. They are crushed. There's no hope of recovery and no hope of any kind of restoration to their ability, no second chance, no, uh, you know, parole or probation or anything like that. No, God, when he judges, he will bring that judgment swiftly. The third, or fourth rather, fourth aspect of, of how God is just, as Elihu explains it here, is in verses 26 through 28. God judges so all can see it. God judges so all can see it. He judges publicly. Verse 26 says, he strikes them like the wicked in a public place, because they turned aside from following him and had no insight from any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him and that he might hear the cry of the afflicted. God is, uh, when he judges, he has no secrecy. He brings things to a public uh, disgrace, public shame. We could see this even in relation to uh, something that happened after, I think, uh, Elihu and Job and all this is when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and Dathan or Dathan and Abiram, Abiram uh, protested against Moses and their authority and every man is holy and all this kind of nonsense uh, in that setting, of course, uh, what, cause God had set apart Moses and Aaron and the Levites and, and, and all these to be holy unto him. And Dathan and Abiram are saying, no, we, we can all do this. And God brought a public a disgrace upon them, a shame, a, a judgment that everybody knew about. You read about that in Numbers 16 and, and uh, Psalm 106, verse 17 also refers to that. Another example of that, a little bit later, in the time of Joshua, or the conquest anyway, coming into the land, Achan and Joshua 7 is one who sinned uh, secretly, and yet God knew all about it, didn't need to be informed about it, didn't need to bring evidence against it. No, what Achan did was confess his sin. He glorified God. A tremendous passage, beautiful illustration of confession and how confession of sin glorifies God in Joshua 7. But Achan said, look, this is where the gold is. This is where the nice stuff that I stole from, from the city that we were supposed to destroy and give it to God, to be devoted to God. And Achan confessed. Well, Achan confessed, and it was confirmed that he did deny or rebel against God's command. And so he was judged and all of his family, everything he had, stoned to death and then buried. And uh, whoa, when God judges, he will judge publicly. Even in the New Testament, we look at, for example, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 20. Those who continue to sin, this is talking about elders, those who are in, in positions of leadership and care for the church. Those who continue in sin reprove in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful. Fearful of sinning, fearful of following after the example in a wrong way. And so public shame is here. Again, the scripture says 
Verse 26, Job 34, 26, he strikes them like the wicked in a public place, in a place where everybody can see it. There's no secrecy. Why does he do it? Because they have turned aside, verse 27. They have rebelled against God. They have failed to love God and obey him. And it says even specifically, they have failed to show kindness or love to neighbors. They turned aside from following him, verse 27. So they're not interested in obeying God. They had no insight. They didn't learn anything from all of God's good ways. God's commandments are good and, and they're life for us. And yet, verse 28 says, they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. They were oppressive toward other people and did not show kindness to them. And God would hear the cry of the afflicted. And so this is why God brings judgment. They are just wicked. They're uh, rebelling against God. And that rebellion shows itself in how they uh, fail to love their neighbor. Verses 28 through 33, just as a side note, are omitted in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, probably not because of a textual variant. There's not any really evidence of that, but it was probably a narrator's or narrator's or uh, a scribe's opinion that, hey, Elihu's talking too much, and so let's shorten his speech. There's, there's really no basis for removing these verses, 28 through 33. And so we look at that. In their disregard, these, these evil people's disregard for God's word and their arrogance and their pride, they forgot. Whoops. God affirms and stands next to those who are poor and impoverished and those who are oppressed by other people. God is interested in justice in, in human relationships. And so he does bring judgment upon them. He judges so all can see it because all can see, or, or certainly uh, many can see, the oppression that they cause upon other people. And so God is able to bring uh, to light their wickedness. Again, we remember in, in uh, verse 29 and 30 that uh, an argument of Job, this is the fifth reason why Elohu says that God judges justly, is, well, Job is saying God doesn't judge in a timely fashion. He is he is late about doing these things, and because of that, it just appears that he is unjust. He's, he's not interested in this justice. Obviously, with Job's situation, he says, what am I doing suffering here? And how is God you know, coming to my aid? I've called up upon him so many times. God is allowing injustice to occur in this time. And so verses 28 and 29, or excuse me, 29 and 30, says that God does judge in time. God judges in his time. If God keeps quiet, who then, who then can condemn? So if he hides his face, who then can perceive him? He is above both nation and man altogether, so that godless men would not rule nor be snares of the people. God's justice is right. God's justice is timely in God's time, not always in our time. God sometimes hides himself. Well, he keeps quiet there at the beginning of verse 29. If he keeps quiet and his, his actions are not evident, uh, who then condemn him? Who can say, well, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why, why aren't you active in this way? You know, rise up. So many times we hear, read about in the Psalms. Rise up, O Lord, and come to my aid. If God keeps quiet, how can we find fault with him? How can we condemn him for him acting according to wisdom and knowledge, impartiality, certainty, uh, in a public fashion? God will judge. So how, who are we to condemn him and find fault with him? If he hides his face, if he withholds his uh, presence from us, not removing by any means his control over all things, but at least our perception of it, you know, are, are, are we able to 
to smoke him out or, or force his hand, kind of like what Job has been demanding. God, I demand you to reveal yourself to me. Answer your charge against me, because I don't understand it. I, I am an innocent man, and I demand justice. Well, God, again, judges in his time. He is above, verse 30 says, he is above both or excuse me, end of verse 29. He is above both nation and man altogether, so that godless men would not rule, nor be snares of the people. We think, well, you know, God is, is the God of, of a nation, you know, the God of the Israelites. No, he's God over every nation, and he will bring all things to pass. He is working to, to make sure that godless people or wicked people will fall in their own wickedness. And we think, well, it's not soon enough. Well, okay, you know, we can argue with God all day long, but we must trust him. We must rest in his knowledge, his power to act, his love, his concern. He says there's a limit. He is above both nation and man altogether. There's no, no one higher than God, and nations are under him. We think, oh, but nations are so powerful. No, they're tools of God to accomplish his will. And his concern, verse 30 says, is that godless men would not rule, nor be snares of the people. God does bring down the wicked, the haughty, the arrogant, those who are just so vile against their, against the other people in their nation or across nation, you know, national boundaries. They are, they are, there are evil people. Yet God will bring judgment upon them in his time. Psalm 125 and verse 3 has a similar statement. It says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous so that the righteous would not send forth their hands in unrighteousness. It doesn't need to be that the righteous would rise up and, and commit sin in order to cast off the, the scepter of wickedness. Now, God will do it in his time. God said, it shall not rest upon the land of the righteous. Now, it may settle there for a little time, but it's not going to be there long term. God will bring an end to that thing. I mean, how many nations have come and gone? How many empires have come and gone in the course of human history? And God is still on his throne. There's no question about that. And we don't need to take matters in our own hands in this regard to, to uh, find justice when we, we can entrust ourselves to God who does judge righteously. And our citizenship is in heaven. It's not arguing anything against, you know, pursuing justice in this life and doing, you know, trying to, within our power, to subvert wickedness and the oppression of, of the poor and needy and all this, and yet ultimately recognizing God is the one who's in charge of these things. God is altogether, how did it say? He is above both nation and man altogether. God is mightier than these things. He says these godless people will not become snares of the people. These are like a, a, a trap for catching birds that are, or, or just any kind of a trap or a snare or hindrance or even a, an obstacle for, you know, running the race, but, uh, but something that uh, entraps people and causes them to, uh, you know, give up hope. No, there's always hope. Even in death, there's, there's hope because God is the God of the living and he is the one who as allow, is able to bring all of us to life in his time and to bring death upon those who are wicked. So we can trust God. Elihu says, Job, God is just. God is going to act in his time with impartiality, with certainty, according to knowledge, so all can see it. He is going to do these things for his glory. So here at the end of this chapter, uh, he has a call to action. Verse, beginning at verse 31, Job, you must repent of your accusation against God. Job, this is what you need to do. Verses 31 to 33 is this next little section that says, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastisement? 
I'll not work destructively, destructively anymore. Instruct me what I do not behold. If I've done injustice, I'll not do it again. And then the question, shall he, God, repay you on your terms? Because you've rejected it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore say what you know. Again, this is all poetry and there's quoting and you know, Elihu is saying things that, that are for other people to be saying. But essentially Elihu is saying, look, Job, you need to stop talking put up your hands, make sure that you recognize you've said things that you ought, to, ought not to have said, and then ask God to teach you what things that you have not understood, things that you didn't get right, and then pledge yourself not to say these things again. Remember, Elihu's issue with Job is not that he had sinned and therefore his suffering had come upon him, but in the course of his suffering, he is saying things that are wrong against God, and he's concerned for Job in the long term, not because he's a wicked man going into this trial, but he has uh, resorted to the arguments of the wicked, those who uh, you accuse God of injustice or uh, absence or whichever. And Job, excuse me, Elihu says, you need to stop and you need to listen to this. He has four claims here in uh, these, these verses here. First one, it says, I have borne chastisement. I have been the one who has been disciplined and I have uh, learned from it. I have learned the error of my ways against, again, this is Job's words, his attitude toward God. I have borne, I have endured this discipline, and I have learned from it. And therefore, the commitment is, the next claim there, I will not work destructively anymore. I will not be the one who is uh, doing things that are evil or tearing down things or tearing down the reputation of God or, or causing those about me to lose faith in God or the assurance that God is good and he is able to do things for his honor, for his glory, for our good. He says, I will not work destructively anymore. And then a commitment, instruct me what I do not behold. Maybe there's things I don't understand. I haven't learned completely yet. I've borne chastisement. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. Help me understand what I do not behold. If I have done injustice, I will not do it again. There's a repentance there, a turning away from fa false uh, practices and thoughts and words and so forth, and a desire not to repeat it, to go forward, to grow in righteousness. Now, Job may have considered that, that he was righteous. And again, we have to remember, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and he was blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil. That is our man, Job. And yet anybody can grow in righteousness because righteousness is a gift of God. It is something that God wants to see established in our lives as we relate to God in humility, which Job is not doing that, and as we relate to one another with love and kindness and compassion, which Job excelled at, and yet, and he did excel at the, the fearing God and that kind of thing too, but when it, you know, the rubber meets the road, he was making himself even more righteous than God, as Elihu was so concerned about. Verse 33 uh, is a little bit confusing, perhaps. Shall he repay it on your terms because you've rejected it? What's he talking about there? Some different translations English translations, uh, um, the CEV says, do you make the rules or does God? You have to decide. I can't do it for you. Now make up your mind. The ESV says, uh, will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I, therefore declare what you know. Uh, one person has uh, paraphrased it this way. This is uh, Christopher Ash in his commentary. You can't expect God to roll over and admit you're right. You must decide to repent of what you've said. You know that's the right thing to do. Elihu's appealing to Job's conscience. Before long, his appeal will be heeded, and Job will be indeed repent of exactly the words of which Elihu says he needs to repent. Elihu's accusations are accurate and precise, so says Ash in his commentary. And so, look, 
he says, you, you can't just assume that, that God is going to respond to you or repay you on your terms. And you've, you've set that aside. It's, it's, uh, you, you think that you've got things right and God has to, you know, bend back, bend over backwards to, to repay you. In fact, God himself says this in Job uh, 41 verse 11, who has given to me, says Yahweh, that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. There's no issue of repaying him or God somehow has to repent or explain himself to us. No, God, when he appears in uh, in chapter 38 and following, he doesn't explain his actions. He doesn't give any kind of uh, apology or, uh, you know, here behind the scenes or Job, this is what you didn't know uh, in terms of the, you know, chapters one and two of Job. No, he says, who am I? Job, make sure that you understand who you are, Job, you're just a man, and who I am, Yahweh, God of all creation, both in uh, his omniscience, he knows everything, and his omnipotence, he is powerful over all things. And so verse 33 uh, says at the end here, you must choose and not I, therefore say what you know. Elihu is making a challenge to Job. He says, look, you are the one who has to repent. You, the, this whole situation is in your power to determine how are you going to respond to these things. You have said things that you ought not to be saying against God. You're the one who has to choose. I can't do it for you. I can't make up the decision for you. You've got to say what you know to be right. Now, Job, you know what's right, but you're speaking foolishly. You're speaking wickedly. And so many things are coming that reject repentance, reject God's terms or God's uh, activity in your life. Job, you're the one who has to repent. You cannot demand from God, as he has, as Job has all throughout this this uh, testimony, demanding an answer from God, sometimes demanding what is right, you know, oh, that I had a mediator between God and man, somebody who, had, who could bring us together and, and that we could argue our case or, or at least hash it out. And of course, we see that in the Lord Jesus who became man for us so that he could become the mediator between God and man, the man, our Lord Christ. And so we look forward to that. And Job looked forward to that as well, anticipated it. But in the course of this suffering, this intense suffering, physical, emotional, uh, spiritual, relational, all these different things that he was enduring, he was think he had stinking thinking, if you don't mind the phrase. He was just thinking and speaking what is not right and not appropriate. But now Elihu says, you've got to choose. You've got to be the one to repent from yourself. Recognize, again, back in verse 31, I have borne chastisement. I'll not work destructively anymore. And this idea, I have learned from God's discipline of me, his training of me, so that I could become more righteous. Well, chapters 34 through 37, or excuse me, verses 34 to 37, it kind of indicates perhaps Elihu paused for just a moment. He was asking, encouraging here in the previous verse, hey, Job, you've got to answer for these things. You've got to speak for your behalf, or of your repentance. Maybe he he paused for just a quick moment to hear if, if Job would respond. And evidently Job did not, at least it's not recorded here. And, uh, and we shouldn't expect him to. Remember the end of chapter 31, it says the words of Job are ended. But here we say, or see rather, that Elihu says, okay, if he's not going to repent, then his testing, not his his punishment, not his his uh, yeah, God's heavy handness upon him should continue, but his testing, his evaluation, the chastisement, the discipline should continue until Job is brought to a place of repentance. Verses thirty four to the rest to the end. Men with a heart of wisdom will say to me, and a wise man will who hears me, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without insight. 
Job ought to be tested to the limit because he answers like wicked men. For he has transgression to his sin, he strikes his hands together among us and multiplies his words against God. So again, Elihu appeals to those with a heart of wisdom or a heart, those men of heart are able to, to speak to Elihu and they encourage him. Uh, even wise men, he says, look, Job hasn't learned anything. He, his, he speaks the verdict here in verse, verses uh, uh, what, 35. Job speaks without knowledge. This is the verdict. This is the decision that's been reached. Job is speaking. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's, he's saying some things that are right, but a lot of things that are wrong. His words are without insight. Knowledge and insight, very important in a wisdom culture. And Job is not, he, he's speaking apart from these things. He's speaking things that aren't right uh, from Elihu's perspective. And he says this is a dreadful uh, verdict against Job's arguments that somehow God, that somehow Job is is speaking not up according to uh, what is uh, prudent, what is uh, shows to be a man of understanding, and so the sentence here in verse thirty six rather Job ought to be tested to the limit because he answers like wicked men. He ought to be tested to the limit. That is to say, not punished, not not. Uh, um, you know, in a, in a negative sense, in a positive sense. Put to the test is, is one way to say it. This, this city, he must be evaluated, must be examined further to prove that he is appropriate, to prove that he is, he is right. You remember back in, uh, Genesis 42 when Joseph's son of Jacob's brothers came and Joseph was trying to discern what was in their heart and he says, hey, uh, this is verse 14 of chapter 42, Genesis. Uh, you are spies, and by this you will be tested. How was, how were, how, what was going to be the means by which their heart, hearts were going to be tested? By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Oh, so that's how it's going to be. And the whole, the whole intrigue and drama about, uh, partiality and, and Joseph's, or excuse me, Jacob's favorite sons and the sons of, of, uh, you know, uh, Joseph and Benjamin being the sons of, oh, the delightful Rachel and uh, all this kind of animosity between them. Hey, bring your youngest brother and let's see how that goes. And then it says, send one of you that you may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. This is the same idea, what Elihu is saying. You've got to be tested to see whether there's truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Jeremiah 11 verse 20 says, Yahweh of hosts who judges righteously, who tests the insides and the heart. God is the one who tests. And so Elihu says, look, Job ought to be tested to the extent, to the full extent of these things. He can't, obviously he hasn't learned anything yet. We've got to see him uh, be completely, entirely uh, brought to the end of himself. And that's what God is going to do very, very clearly, very uh, emphatically. Job will be brought to the end of himself to honor and recognize God. And so we see that this, uh, this, uh, the sentence against Job is that he should be, the testing should continue until he repents. There are arguments, four arguments here. Wrapping up this chapter really quickly. Job answers like wicked men. He's talking like a fool, just as he accused his wife back in chapter two. You're speaking as one of the foolish women. Uh, and, and now Job is, is doing that. He answers. His words are like wicked men. He is the one who, who speaks things that he just doesn't, uh, he's, he's not himself. He's speaking out of his own mind, out of his right mind, uh, because he's he's in this suffering and, and has listened to really poor counsel from the friends all this while, and he's he's speaking in improper means. 
It says he adds transgression to his sin. Uh, and you could just as well say he adds sin to his transgression. It's not to make a distinction between transgression and sin. A lot of times those those uh, nouns or, or terms are associated with each other. And, uh, for example, back in that context of, of, uh, Josh, of Joseph and his brothers, they came and said, uh, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. And so we see those two uh, connection uh, uh, words together there or other places as well, uh, the sins and transgression of the people and, and so forth. He's just adding more. He, he's And again, it's not sin that caused his suffering. It's the suffering that, that brought out the pride, the arrogance of, of Job's heart that, that uh, showed that God was doing defending his own honor and glory against Satan's accusations. Job only honored God because God was a, a generous giver. No, God is worthy of his, of his worship at all time. And Job, you can still grow in your righteousness. It's not that you've attained it. Think of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I've not yet attained it. I don't, I'm not perfect. Nowhere near to it. I press on toward these things. And Job needs to recognize that as well. Not that he has somehow, you know, attained the pinnacle of righteousness, but that he needs to continue to grow. Contrary to, the, contrary to that, he is adding transgression to his sin. All of his words against God's justice, against God's goodness and, and righteousness. And so he's adding that. He strikes hands, third argument against him, he strikes hands, his hands together among us. He is one who is, uh, well, as the scripture talks about, a root of bitterness. One who is offending the believing community with unbelief, with challenging God, and uh, some kind of, uh, um, not just verbal, but also a physical uh uh, striking his hands. A lot of times in scripture, Numbers 24, for example, Balaam, um, no, Balak is the one who struck his hands together against Balaam because of the cursing of the enemies and instead of Balaam was, was blessing them. And so he struck his hands together, kind of a, a figure of exasperation or, or something. And uh, he was just angry about these things. He is striking his hands together among us. People are seeing this. People are taking note. Hey, there's Job. Cursing God, and not cursing in the in the sense that Satan was was accusing or accused Job of doing back in chapter, well chapters one and two, that if you if you cause suffering that he'll he'll curse you to your face, but he is one who is saying things that are not right, and he is he is uh, demonstrating his anger, his not his hatred toward God, but his his questioning God, challenging God, not in a good sense, not in a positive sense, and so he is causing uh, problems among the people. Uh, scoffing and slapping and so forth. He strikes his hands together among us. This is not just about Job. This is a community issue now. Your, your influence, your impact is problematic among us. And the last argument is you're multiplying his words against God. Job, or excuse me, Elihu is one who says, no, I'm going to speak. In fact, chapter 36, he begins, he says, there's yet more to speak of in term, on behalf of God. I will yet proclaim God's righteousness. But Job is multiplying his words against God and against God's righteousness. And so he needs to repent of these things. Job, this testing is going to continue until you humble yourself before God, repent of your foolishness and draw near to him. So much of this is, again, saying, Job, are you going to really condemn God for what he's doing in your life? No, God is just and you can trust him. You better repent. Otherwise, you will be 
severely challenged uh, by God. You will be cut off. Now, that there's never, Elihu never gets to that point because he has assurance that Job will repent, that he will humble himself, just as we all ought to humble ourselves before God. We are the ones who are not in charge. We're not over nation. We're not over man altogether. We are the one who is ones who are under the care and authority of God Most High, and we can trust him. Don't always understand it. Don't always recognize that he is acting according to wisdom, according to certainty, according to all those good things. And in his time, maybe that's the one thing that, that causes us so many problems, that we argue against God and say, why haven't you acted already? Why haven't you done this thing? God, please act. Rise up and act, for I'm about to be undone. Job is called to faith and by Elihu and says, put your hope in God, trust in him, repent of your foolishness what, and your, your arrogance, your pride that you've got it all figured out. God is the only one who has it figured out. Our Father in heaven, you're so good to us. Thank you for your truth, truth of your word. Thank you, Elihu's message to Job, but also to us. Help us not to challenge you, to question your wisdom, your, your knowledge, your righteousness, your power to work, and your intention to work for your glory and our good. Please help us always to rest in you and find our sufficiency in you, find our confidence and our hope in you. And even if we were to die in this world, we know that our uh, our future, our identity is secure in Christ because he died in our place. He took away the most serious issue we could ever had, have. And that's not injustice. In fact, it is justice, your justice against sin. And you put your justice upon our Lord Jesus. He died in our place so that we would not have to bear that death punishment for our sin. We can have the righteousness of God in him, the acceptance before you, and the hope of living with you in eternity. Wow, what a privilege, what a pleasure, what a, what a grace gift is that. Please help us to rest in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.